This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have the good fortune to have Jeffrey Miller with us. Jeffrey's an international analyst on international subjects with the Democracy Project, which is hosted by Victoria University. And he has done geopolitical issues. He's lived in Germany and the Middle East and is fluent in German and Arabic. Jeffrey, first I'll mention that you can podcast this by going to oar.org and then going to podcasts and then going to Community or Chaos. Jeffrey, could you comment on state of the world post the invasion of Ukraine and Jacinda Ardern's negotiation of events, particularly around our relationship with the United States, Australia, China, and Asia? Good morning, Marvin. It's good to be with you once again. Well, Jacinda Ardern herself has described this year as, as messy and, and grim, uh, and that's how she's described the current situation. And uh, it's hard not to agree with her in, in that. It is a, a pretty grim picture. I think we're in a much worse place overall. The world is in a much worse place at the end of the year than when we started. Uh, I think I last joined you in the lead-up to the, to the war in Ukraine, to Russia's invasion. And, you know, obviously that invasion did happen in the end. And there's very much a sense that there's a before and an after with February 24th. And it set a whole chain of events in motion, that invasion. And I think changed a lot of people's perceptions around the world. We saw a lot of impact from New Zealand's perspective uh, on New Zealand foreign policy. And, you know, New Zealand implemented an autonomous sanctions regime against Russia. And that was a huge step. That was one of the first things I wrote about after the invasion happened. I wrote a piece uh, saying that the invasion would change New Zealand's foreign policy. And it really did, because we ended up with this autonomous sanctions regime that was introduced against Russia, but it set a precedent that it could be introduced against any other uh, country. New Zealand's trade with Russia was minimal. But um, you know, obviously, it's a precedent against you know, uh, well for future okay. uh, for future reference, um, and notably China, of course, being New Zealand's biggest trading partner. That's the uh, I guess the suspicion that it, uh, you know having introduced autonomous sanctions against Russia, uh, New Zealand at some point could be pressured into introducing uh, sanctions on China, which is you know, New Zealand's biggest trading partner. Thirty three percent of our exports go to China every year, so very much, uh, you know, fuels New Zealand's economic livelihoods. You know, all that milk powder and uh, meat and so forth, you know, one third of it pretty much uh, goes to the, the Chinese market each year. So, um, you know, going back to your wider point, you know, just so many things have changed this year. 
I think you saw, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed uh, people's views of, of risk, and uh, it changed the view we, the, it changed the way we viewed the world uh, in the Indo-Pacific as well in our region. I think a lot of people became very suspicious of China's motives, having seen what Russia did to Ukraine. Uh, then there was a natural tendency, a suspicion to uh, say that, well, the same thing could happen in the Pacific, so we need to be on our guard and we need to take a harder line against China. And whether that is right or not, that really was what perceptions were uh, after the, the Russian invasion. I think you know things, you know, obviously over time, you know, we're nine months into the war now, uh, and over time things begin to balance out a bit more. And we've seen, I think, a slight recalibration in the last few months from New Zealand, which goes back more, which has gone back more to the ways of old, where we have an independent foreign policy, uh, where we're not simply in lockstep with what the US, what Australia are doing, where we, we did seem to be in that space earlier in the year. I think now it's a bit more nuanced and uh, we've we've gone back to uh, you know that independent foreign policy line. Jacinda Ardern meeting Xi Jinping over in in, in Cambodia was a or in Bangkok I should say was was a step forward. So um, you know you know I I'm you know, pessimistic, but I'm also optimistic. I think that uh, you know it's been a pretty tough year, but there are some uh, positive signs, a few positive signs, and we've got to really grasp hold of those positive signs. Um, however. You know, small they may be, and and hope for a better twenty twenty three than than we've had in twenty twenty two. Is the U the resistance of the Ukraine to the Russian invasion would that have uh, changed China's attitude toward um, Taiwan or China's what China might have planned? Well, there's no doubt that China would have been watching very carefully what's happened in, in Ukraine. And remember, what happened was not what was expected. Uh, you know, we from all you know conventional comparisons, we expected Russia to roll into Ukraine and and make light work of it uh, with the invasion. That was really you know, if you looked at the military numbers, the tank numbers, everything was in Russia's favour. If you go back to the what analysts believed before the war, most would have thought that Russia would you know would 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 win quite comfortably and quite quickly. Um, and that's not what happened. Ukraine fought back, and uh, of course, you know the leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky was quite pivotal in that. And Russia's competence was not nearly at the level um, that it, that was thought. Uh, it was very incompetent. It was a bumbling invasion, and that's why we're in the quagmire we're in now. Look, Russia is far from down and out. I, I think there's often a wishful thinking element on the part of Western analysts who kind of think that Ukraine is, is really winning in this war. I think it's much more of a stalemate than we like to admit. Russia has, has certainly got quite considerably more territory in Ukraine than it had before the war, and uh, it is quite a dangerous game we're playing here, given that Russia is uh, you know, armed with nuclear weapons. But I think, you know, going back to your question, I think there's no doubt that China's been watching. And it wasn't, you know, the walk in the park that it might have, uh, you know, seemed to have been on paper. And all wars are messier on, in, in reality than they are on paper. So, uh, you know, who knows? I don't think that China is about to invade Taiwan. I don't think they were about to invade Taiwan at any point. I think 
you if you think that I think uh, I'm talking about you know analysts writ large if you think that that's going to happen I think um, you're simplifying things overly uh, the, you know China benefits Beijing benefits hugely from stability and that is what the whole zero COVID policy has been about that's given uh, you know, a huge amount of trouble to the to the regime there in Beijing is very different to the COVID policy in Russia, which was really to let it run rampant. Uh, but Beijing values stability. An invasion of Taiwan would be would be catastrophic economically because of the repercussions. And China has been able to see that. You know, it's been able to see how the West has uh, been more unified as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there's no doubt that something similar would would happen. I mean, it would be more difficult in the event that China did invade uh, Taiwan because China is so integrated into Western supply chains. But nevertheless, I think it's clear that there would be some uh, kind of similar response and Western unity on on Taiwan, I think, would 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 come. Um, you know, that wasn't 100% clear with Ukraine, by the way. Uh, it wasn't 100% clear that there would be Western unity on, U- on Ukraine at all. Um, but largely the there the was and there has been and there still is. There's still quite a lot of Western solidarity with Ukraine. It hasn't spread beyond the West, but in Western countries, it's still really the done thing to support Ukraine and, and support Ukraine quite wholeheartedly. Okay. So, um, can you comment on a, a country that has formerly been very close to New Zealand, historically and otherwise, certainly going back to Edmund Hillary and Norman Kirk, India. Um, and I understand that they're somewhat maybe legitimately upset at um, New Zealand immigration's treatment of Japanese, uh, the treatment of Indian um, uh, applications for visas to visit or to as students. Uh, I personally have known about this because we've had Quaker conferences in which uh, Indian uh, pastors and others who have been vouched for have not either not received their uh, visas or received them too late to participate in events. Mm. Yes, well, the Indian Foreign Minister made a five-day visit to New Zealand, which was very unusual. I mean, it was unusual to get a visit from the Indian Foreign Minister, and it's even more unusual for him to stay so long. But he came in in the start of October, and this was one of his main complaints, actually, was the way that New Zealand had treated Indian visa holders. You remember during the pandemic, people had to leave the country often at some point, you know, for family reasons, whatever and but the problem was that New Zealand did not let them back in so Indian student visa holders they left the country left New Zealand then they had no right way of getting back in um, because MIQ the managed isolation and quarantine spaces were reserved for New Zealand citizens and permanent residents so they had no way of getting back for the most part and uh, their visas simply expired and now, of course, we don't have the MIQ system, but New Zealand hasn't been proactive in renewing those student visas. 
Um, so we've all heard about um, the problems at immigration New Zealand and the backlogs. Um, the, the the waiting times for visas are just enormous for for anyone who needs a visa to come to New, to New Zealand um, at the moment. And there's clearly that that is providing some bad blood in the relationship. So I wrote a piece about this uh, about the India New Zealand relationship after Jay Shankar's visit, and you know there was a lot of you know, the inevitable shaking of hands and kind words, but. When it all came down to it, um, it was clear to me that all was not well. You know, our trading relationship has gone backwards with India. Um, they were our uh, our tenth biggest trading partner just a few years ago, back in 2016. Uh, they're no more than our fifteenth uh, now, and you know they've you know the 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 goals have have become much much smaller. New Zealand had prioritised a free trade agreement and the negotiations towards a free trade agreement uh, with India. And there was a big mission just before COVID began back in February 2020. Winston Peters, the foreign minister, went over to India with quite a big delegation. Uh, you know, And trade was, was part of that. Now, look, it, there's always this tension with free trade agreements when you just make free trade your aim, then are you actually focusing on the wider relationship? Is it just a bit uh, greedy going after the, the the trade side? And New Zealand has sometimes been accused of, of being like that. Um, but nevertheless, trade is always going to be one way into relationships for New Zealand. So I don't think it was wrong to have uh, a free trade agreement at, with India as a goal. shouldn't be the only goal, but it was a goal. But at this meeting with the Indian Foreign Minister, uh, Dr. Jay Shankar, back in October, Nanai Mahuta, the New Zealand Foreign Minister, said that it was no longer a priority for New Zealand, which I found quite a bizarre comment to to make. She said it wasn't a priority for uh, New Zealand or for India. Now, we, we get that it's not a, a huge priority for India. I mean, why would it? Why would a free trade agreement with a country New Zealand size be a priority? But it should always be a priority for us. Um, it shouldn't be your perhaps your number one priority right now. Perhaps just you know rebuilding that relationship and getting on better terms with India should be the priority. And certainly, if visas are the issue, then that should be sorted out because uh, it is something that is clearly on India's mind when they think of New Zealand. They think of you know the disgruntled uh, students uh, and citizens who. Uh, you know, can't get back into New Zealand. And remember, you know, the you know the Indian High Commission in, in Wellington, they will be first port of call for New Zealand uh, for Indian nationals who are having difficulties with New Zealand. And so they will be well aware of all of these kinds of tensions. And this will be being fed back to the the Foreign Ministry uh, back in Delhi. So you know, if that's what they think of when they think of New Zealand, they think you know unfair treatment of Indian nationals. Well, that's terrible for the relationship. And this is the second biggest country on earth we're talking about. Um, so you couldn't get two more different relationships, the New Zealand-China relationship and the New Zealand-India relationship. They're the two biggest countries on earth, China and India, and yet they're chalk and cheese in terms of the relationships that New Zealand has managed to cultivate. And it's been a real misstep in, in my view. And New Zealand simply needs to put in a lot more effort and it goes right to the top. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, you know, boost your relationship with any country, you know, travel is a big part of it. And we 
we haven't seen the foreign minister travel to India. We haven't seen the prime minister travel to India. We haven't seen them signal it as a priority for travel either. Um, so here you've got the Indian foreign minister coming all the way uh, to New Zealand. Now, the New Zealand foreign minister uh, is making no plans that we know of uh, to make a reciprocal visit. Normally, you know, you would expect it the other way around, that New Zealand as the small player would be much keener on developing relations with the bigger partner. But it's just not happening uh, with with India. Well, why is that, do you think? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I think Nanaima, who did, the generally the foreign minister, she's not travelling. Uh, she's only made a handful of trips this year. She's travelled probably uh, less often than the prime minister. Or no, uh, no Has there been often. a mistake to give her some of the other uh, portfolios she's had? Yeah, again, I would I would put this right to the top. I mean, in the end, Nanaima Huta serves at the pleasure of Jacinda Ardern. And if the Prime Minister wants her to travel more, wants the Foreign Minister to travel more, she could tell her to do so, or she could find another minister. I just wonder whether Jacinda Ardern likes being her own foreign minister, effectively. She likes doing uh, the travel herself, and she doesn't want to be upstaged by her, her foreign minister. So... A lot of the travel that the Naimahuta has done has been more around the Pacific, which is lower profile. But when it comes to the big trips uh, to London, to Washington and so forth, uh, to Singapore, Japan, Jacinda Ardern has done that herself. I don't know. It would be fascinating to know really what's going on behind the scenes. Um, is it to do with the domestic portfolio, the Naimahuta's local government portfolio, which involves, of course, the three waters reforms? It could be part of it, but it is a mystery to me. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of India specifically, I think one issue with India is that it has not joined the Western coalition on Ukraine. And everything has become very polarised this year. And most of the Prime Minister's travel, Jacinda Ardern's travel, has been to uh, countries that have been on the Western side of supporting Ukraine. Jacinda Ardern's travel to... Maybe that would be a good time to use your foreign minister if you didn't want to go yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's a mystery, Marvin, to me, as I said. I mean, there's, 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 I there's no real logic to me. I think the foreign minister should be travelling three weeks out of four, especially after COVID. There's a need to catch up. And and certainly if you look at other foreign ministers, they've done a huge amount of travel this year because this has been the first year that has been semi-normal um, since, since 2019. But as I say, I, I think India is being left also to one side because it's not convenient, you know, because it is not supporting the West on Ukraine. It's been buying Russian oil at knockdown prices. And uh, India has not backed the West and has not backed Ukraine. So I think, you know, India is in the sort of unpopular category uh, for Western countries at the moment. And New Zealand has become a bit more pro-Western this year and has felt a bit of heat. So it is, you know, perhaps deliberately called on relations with the likes of India. Um, the, um, that's, you know, one other reason that you can think of. From and the, hopefully that kind of mentality will change because it's not going to get us anywhere. From the Indian point of view, if you were uh, handling Indian uh, visas and so on, might you have the feeling that, oh, if these were Americans or Canadians or uh, British, why they'd, they would act faster and they'd have more access to visas and so on? Well, I'm no, not saying possi- that's true, but would that be a possible possibly, reaction? Possibly. Possibly. I think you would feel pretty annoyed 
um, wouldn't you? I mean, imagine you're an Indian national. You come to New Zealand. You'd paid a lot of money to study here. Then the pandemic comes. You, for whatever reason, you've got to go back to India. You know, maybe to look after family. You know, of course, they had huge numbers of of deaths in India. They were first in line for the Delta wave. So you might go back for a while, but then want to come back and finish your studies. And then you find a closed door from New Zealand. And even now, at this point, um, it's difficult for for the student visa holders to get back into New Zealand because of the backlogs at immigration New Zealand. You would feel like you got a pretty raw deal, wouldn't you? And, uh, you know, of, of course, you know, Indians, you know, they require a visa to do any, to come to New Zealand at all, uh, even as visitors. Um, whereas the other countries you mentioned, you know, the United States, the Australians and so forth, they can come as visitors under visa waiver, under the visa waiver program. So, um, they, of course, they would still require visas for studying here, but they're less likely to do so. So, you know, you know, wealthy countries are lucky, aren't they? If you're a citizen from one of the, you know, 30 or 40 Western countries or so, you can visit each other's countries without many problems um, and you don't have the, to, to deal with these visa problems. For most of the world's population, visas are just a, uh, a reality of life. If you want to go to even visit any other country, you're going to require a visa. So, you know, these problems at Immigration New Zealand, they don't really affect rich countries. Uh, countries, uh, rich country nationals, they affect the developing world especially. Uh, and you know, India, of course, was you know one of our major sources of international students before the pandemic. Hey, you would think that you would want to rekindle that, you know, given that international education was one of New Zealand's main, was it one of New Zealand's economic mainstays. You, you would think if you were the government, you'd want to get some of that back uh, because it was quite lucrative, but there doesn't seem to be any urgency um, they from the government uh, to do so. Okay, I'll play some music now.
We're talking with Jeffrey Miller and international analysis on foreign policy. And we've been talking about the post-Ukrainian uh, 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 invasion and how that affects current views and also post-COVID, I suppose. We were talking about trade. I was thinking about how narrow our trade really is. Should we have a broader, should we try to have a, a broader trade relation? Not only a larger number of people we might trade with, but also a number of products we might, is depending on um, powdered milk, a, a healthy situation for New Zealand's economy and as far as that goes for her relations with other nations if we want to have a, a wider foreign policy and not be dependent on single large trading partners. Well, I think, Marvin, New Zealand policymakers for decades have been talking along those lines. But they haven't done anything uh, about it. In fact, yeah. in the 1990s, they made it worse. They got rid no, of I mean, long-term thinking isn't New Zealand's strong point, if we're, we're honest about it. And, you know, there's the old... You know, talk about why are we exporting the raw product, the milk powder, the logs? Why aren't we exporting the finished goods? Why aren't we moving up the value chain? And, you know, politicians, you know, for decades have been saying this. It would be nice to... Uh, we actually to, made a decision in the late 80s to confine ourselves, to go away from that. We got rid mm. of a lot of uh, manufacturing and so on, and mills. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the end, you know... The, as I said, you, you don't really see a huge amount of uh, long-term planning. There's probably a reluctance on the part of the government to get into these kinds of issues. Haven't uh, countries like Scandinavia, like Finland and um, Sweden and others actually done better by long-term planning? Well, I think there's a good good argument for, for that. And certainly I think New Zealand's hope uh, really is to go premium. Um, and you know, New Zealand just enjoys such a positive image um, in in the world for being clean and green. This is really our unique selling point, and we probably don't make enough of it, uh, really, uh, in terms of um, you know our products that we export. Um, I was over in the Middle East recently, and you know, it came up in the conversations that I had about New Zealand products. You know. We're, we're good quality, but uh, very good quality. But actually, other countries, the likes of Australia for meat, for example, or, or Denmark for butter, they were better at, at branding themselves. Um, if you've seen the the Lurpak butter that you can you can buy that here in the shops as well as uh, Danish butter, and it's very luxuriously branded. It's got nice silver packaging. It looks premium, and this kind of thing goes down very well in the Gulf, and you. If you go to the Gulf countries, uh, you'll find this everywhere, this uh, silver Lurpak uh, Danish butter. Now, you know, I'm biased here coming from New Zealand, but I don't think the taste is as good. I don't think the flavour profile is as good as New Zealand butter. Um, but the marketing is better um, than New Zealand butter and the prices they get for it. I mean, you, you go down to your local supermarket here and you'll see the price that 
um, the Danish Lurpak butter is sold for. It's a lot more than what you pay for Anchor, um, for example. And uh, I think for New Zealand, there's just a lot, there's a lot of opportunities in uh, you know going up the value chain with with you know branding um, and so forth. Now, of course, that's going a little bit out of my area. I really focus on the political side of things. I think that for New Zealand policymakers, the you know, the main thing that the government can do is to open doors because that's what governments can do. Governments can no- negotiate free trade agreements. Fonterra can't. You know, so that's what Damien O'Connor, the trade minister, is doing, is going around the world and negotiating New Zealand's trade position to make it easier for New Zealand exporters. And when it comes to the Gulf, we've been negotiating a free trade agreement uh, with the, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which includes the six wealthy countries on the Arabian uh, Peninsula, you know, think the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, Bahrain, Oman, Kuwait. Um, you know, those are the, the countries that we've been negotiating with. And uh, But the, the agreement has gone nowhere. I mean, it was agreed in principle in 2009, but it hasn't been ratified. And I think a big part of that is that they're waiting for leadership from from the top in New Zealand. They want a visit. And this is how it works in the Middle East. It works on FaceTime and showing up. And when your foreign minister, New Zealand's foreign minister, is not travelling, and when Jacinda Ardern is travelling, but travelling mainly to Western uh, countries, um, then that's a problem because you're not getting the top um, the top figures. Damien O'Connor uh, has been to the Gulf. Uh, he was there at the start of the year, and the Naimahuta did make a, a trip there to her credit uh, about a year ago for Expo 2020, which was being held a year later uh, because of the pandemic in, in Dubai. But I think we need to put a lot more effort. Um, if you really want to diversify, you've got to uh, you've got to um, show up, really. And uh, that's the old line from Woody Allen: "80 percent of success is showing up." And I think it applies to uh, New Zealand's. Uh, foreign policy as well. You know, you should be seeing the New Zealand foreign minister uh, on a plane a lot more often, as, as I said before. But in, in terms of other trading options, this year we saw the free trade agreement signed between New Zealand and the EU, um, which was positive, and it certainly put New Zealand exporters in a better place than they were before. Particularly if you're a kiwi fruit exporter or an apple exporter, you wouldn't be. Uh, you'd be pretty happy. But it was not a good agreement for. Uh, for meat and dairy, which are really the bulk of New Zealand's exports. Uh, there's still uh, quite a strict quota in place, I think about 10,000 tonnes uh, for New Zealand beef into Europe. And then there are strict limits on uh, on amounts and there's still tariffs in place for um, some uh, key products in, in dairy, for example. So milk powder is still largely being kept out of the, the EU um, from from New Zealand and the you know big limitations on on other products that New Zealand sells. So um, it's it, the devil is always in the detail, and I, I was a bit disappointed by that agreement. And I think New Zealand sold out too too cheaply. Um, it is good to get in a, in a deal, uh, an agreement, but you shouldn't sign a deal at any price. And I think uh, Jacinda Ardern was just very keen to sign a deal. Politically, she wins from having a deal. And there was a lot of spin and a lot of positive PR coming out of that. No doubt it will turn up in Labour's campaign literature next next year um, as a positive step. And most people don't probably look in the details too too much. But certainly if you look at it in the meat and dairy lobby, they were not happy 
with this agreement and we probably would have got a better deal in my view if we had been a bit more hard-nosed and kept negotiating for another year or two um, but that wouldn't have helped Jacinda Ardern politically. You know, she's got an election next year. Chances are, you know, if polls are to be believed, she won't be prime minister in a year's time. So what use does a deal down the track have? She would have rather got a deal of any kind um, uh, signed and, and delivered, which she did. So how is um, Jacinda's... Um, Sands toward China changing over the last year. You've seen a, a quite a change, I would think. It's, yeah, it's been fascinating, Marvin. I, I mean, in the first six months of the year, New Zealand really attacked towards the West in terms of its foreign policy post uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There was the autonomous sanctions, but then, you know, if you recall, China signed a security deal with Solomon Islands. And this set in train a whole lot of uh, activity in the Pacific. And New Zealand backed Australia and the US to the hilt, really, on on all of that. New Zealand talked about, you know, the Pacific being his backyard, repeating lines that Australia had used. It talked about the Pacific family. It signed up, New Zealand signed up to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is a, a new economic vehicle that the US is using to counter Chinese uh, ambitions. New Zealand signed up to this new grouping called Partners in the Blue Pacific, which is uh, uh, a group with Australia and Japan, Germany now as well, uh, led by the US. Um, so, you know, New Zealand was really in lockstep with the uh, with the West. You know, Jacinda Ardern went to the NATO conference in Spain, which called out China as a major strategic challenge. You know, and talk, called out Chinese coercion and so forth. Um, so. You know, it really felt like New Zealand was was putting its uh, lot in with the West in the first six months. But then we did see a recalibration. You know, suddenly Jacinda Ardern, I think, realised that she had gone too far and that New Zealand had just gone too far the other way. And we were seeing some some big warning signs coming out of Beijing, comments that were coming out of the foreign ministry telling New Zealand to remember its independent foreign policy. And I think there was just suddenly, it really came as a wake-up call to New Zealand. So um, suddenly Jacinda Ardern started talking about dialogue and diplomacy and de-escalation and said that it wasn't a battle between democracy and autocracy, which is the line that Joe Biden had used. Um, and, you know, it became much more conciliatory towards China. Um, when, you know, we had all that activity over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan back in start of August. You know, Jacinda Ardern called for de-escalation and, you know, was very, as I say, very conciliatory towards uh, China and and more positive and talked a lot about the independent foreign policy suddenly again. So it felt like in speeches, at least, she was uh, becoming more positive towards China. And then, of course, just recently, she had the meeting with Xi Jinping, which went very well went for 50 minutes instead of, I think, it was allocated uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, uh, went longer. And uh, the upshot is that she, you know, she's got an invitation to Beijing. She wants to go there with a, a trade delegation, though, and that's very difficult uh, you know, with, with China's zero COVID policy at the moment. I mean, leaders are visiting China. Mm. We've, we've seen the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visiting China recently, for example. You know, it is possible to visit 
China, but it's very difficult to take a whole lot of, of business people with you, and that's what Jacinda Ardern wants to do. Um, but you know, the way things are developing in China at the moment, their zero COVID policy could be on its on its last legs. So suddenly China could be opening up again, and we could see a situation just like New Zealand a year ago, where you go from you know completely closed to open within a space of a few months. And then I think Jacinda Ardern will be certainly keen to fly up to to Beijing because there is no plan B. You know, New Zealand really is reliant on the Chinese market. The you know there is no alternative, and that EU deal that we signed just showed that that you know in the end, if push comes to shove, China is the country that is buying New Zealand exports. It's not the US. You know, the US is not. Part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it hasn't given New Zealand a free trade deal. So, despite all the talk about you know the US being great long-standing partners of New Zealand, it doesn't extend to trade. And you know the EU is just not willing to open up. As you know, it still wants to keep its protectionist policies and exclude the bulk of New Zealand's agricultural exports. Then you have these other markets around the world, of course, which are helpful. The ASEAN countries, for example, Southeast Asia, very helpful. They're about New Zealand's uh, fourth biggest uh, trading partner or export market. The Gulf countries, uh, you know, they're about seventh, but they're not a substitute. You know, they're still relatively small compared with the big elephant in the room, and that is China. That buys $20 billion worth of New Zealand's exports every year, 33%. So, um, you know, there's no substitute um, on the horizon. For, why, for, yeah. for China. Why did China sort of change its attitude toward New Zealand? And going more than halfway to meet our prime minister, compare her talk with uh, uh, Jinping then, uh, and with Trudeau's talk. Well, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Justin Trudeau uh, had that very public falling out with Xi Jinping, where Xi Jinping was upbraiding him over leaking. Uh, contents of a conversation. I think that was related to, uh, well, Trudeau was claiming that, uh, China had been interfering in, in Canadian politics in some form. And that was leaked to the Canadian media. Um, so the contents of a conversation, a private conversation between Trudeau and Xi Jinping. And then Xi Jinping went up to Trudeau, was all caught on camera where he, uh, you know, Xi Jinping told, told him off, told Trudeau off for, for leaking effectively, it was quite quite something to watch, and we didn't see any of that with with Jacinda Ardern. She kept her cards very close to her chest. We don't know exactly what was discussed. I mean, we can guess, and we've got you know a, a public summary of it and so forth. I, you know, you think it would be the usual about how important the partnership is, and no doubt Jacinda Ardern did raise some of the the thornier issues, the human rights issues. You know, New Zealand prime ministers are expected to do so. Um, when it comes to you know, human rights of Uyghurs in Xinjiang or Hong Kong, there's no doubt that Jacinda Ardern would have raised some of these things, these these tensions. But you know, overall, you know, it seemed to be a positive in, encounter. You know, we can see that with this invitation to visit China. China likes New Zealand. I think they like New Zealand for you know a variety of reasons. I think there is a an element of being able to peel New Zealand off. From the west, from the west, I think mm-hmm. China likes the fact that New Zealand's in the Five Eyes, and yet it's got a very close relationship with Beijing. I think there is some truth to that. That China sees New Zealand as the weaker, weakest link in the Five Eyes. So, mm-hmm. therefore, if it can 
um, make if it can be good friends with New Zealand, it's a way of weakening that Western alliance. But I think, yeah, you know, I think there's more to it. We've than got that, historical links, don't we? Too. Yeah, going exactly. Back to going World War Two and the early Communist Party and um, our relations with China, and that we, when we decided that uh, Chinese could immigrate with their families to New Zealand back in the I think it's the 1940s during World War II, uh, the Labour government, after excluding them for 100 years. That's right. And then um, you have New Zealanders like Rewi Ali, who yeah. you know, lived in China for decades. And I think, you know, China likes New Zealand. They like New Zealand food products. They value um, what New Zealand has to offer. I think they like New Zealand's size, um, the fact that it's a small country that they can use as a test, testing ground. Um, the fact New Zealand is independent, you know, and it has shown an independent streak, you know, going back to, you know, the, the falling out with the United States over ANZUS, uh, back in the 1980s. I think they like New Zealand's, uh, you know, independent mindedness that's come through at times, that independent streak. They like the fact that we're not in alliance with the United States. I mean, there's lots of reasons for China to like New Zealand. And China does seem keen to keep New Zealand on side. Remember, China fell out with Australia uh, during the COVID period, and China imposed some quite punitive tariffs on Australian products like wine and barley um, and so forth. And relations are not great with between China and Australia. They might be improving slightly, I think, under the new administration. Anthony Albanese did get a meeting with Xi Jinping as well, but it wasn't nearly as long as Jacinda Ardern's meeting. And Albanese didn't get an invite to Beijing either. So, um, you know, I think New Zealand's relationship with China is still pretty good, despite all of their actions this year. And, you know, things were a bit dicey for a while. But I think when we come to the end of the year, um, you know, the New Zealand-China relationship is, is still intact. And that's a good thing because, you know, in the end, what pays for, you know, the schools, the roads, the hospitals, all the infrastructure we like in New Zealand is the tax take on those exports. That, that go to China. So there's, while there's talk of a, a shallower recession next year, imagine how deep the recession would be if China decided to cut New Zealand off as punishment for you know, siding uh, too closely with the, the West. And I think China is, is keen to keep New Zealand on, on side, and that seems to be the trajectory we're on at the moment. And if Jacinda Ardern goes to Beijing next year, then, then that should cement that further. If national... And the act become the government next in the next election. Would that relationship continue in the same direction? It's really interesting. It's a really interesting question, Marvin. John Key was incredibly pro-China, and he still is. There was an interview that came out with him just last week in the Global Times, which is a Chinese government mouthpiece, if we're honest, a Chinese state media. Um, but it's still very interesting because it was a transcript of an interview with John Key about China-New Zealand relations, and he really gave uh, you know, his full views on the relationship, and um, he's very, very positive towards China, and very positive towards the relationship, and says New Zealand should keep uh, China as a friend because, you know, you know, there are tensions like human rights issues and so forth, but China will be much more willing to listen to a friend talking to it, you know, in private than to have you know, people shouting at it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, if New Zealand really cares about human rights, 
then keeping up the good relationship and the engagement will probably be more effective. I mean, what does China care if New Zealand fell out with China? What would China care about New Zealand shouting at it? Um, I don't think that would fix uh, the issues, uh, and mm. I don't think it would serve New mm. Zealand any good. Well, you know, maybe the, for a bigger country like the US, the calculation is different, but I think New Zealand, given that it's so asymmetric, the relationship between New Zealand and China, you know, 5 million versus, you know, 1.3 billion. I mean, it's, it's not an equal partnership, is it? So, um, I think, you know, it's interesting to think about John Key's comments. It's very interesting to think about whether the current national leadership under Christopher Luxon and uh, Nicola Willis, whether they would continue that John Key policy. They, they might do because, of course, National is the, the party of the farming community and farmers understand the importance of the, the China relationship. But politically and sort of internationally, conservative parties have, have gone, you know, more hard line towards China. If you look at Scott Morrison's liberals mm. in Australia, uh, you know, it's no longer Scott Morrison, of course, at the top, but, you know, there've been lots of parties around the world, the conservative side of politics that have, have gone, you know, much more aggressive in their, become much more aggressive in their tone towards China and, uh, have become a lot more intolerant of, of Xi Jinping. They see that, um, he's on a path to, you know, uh, he wants to build an empire in, in their view and, and, you know, they're very worried about, uh, you know, the potential and, uh, potential invasion of Taiwan. Don't, national could go down that road. Uh, it could go down the road of, you know, you know, the, the Tories in the UK or the Liberal Party in Australia that are becoming, you know, much more hawkish towards China. But I think the farming side of, of things in national is still very strong. Um, that's the base. For, um, for the party. So I think there's a good chance that they will, you know, they may, you know, step up the rhetoric a bit in terms of, of China, but in terms of the actual substance, they're probably more likely to hold the line and continue that John Key style uh, foreign policy towards China. Perhaps they'll be just a bit, uh, a bit quieter in the way that they approach things and they, they probably, probably won't be as uh, openly positive uh, as as John Key has been in this in this interview um, that he gave to Chinese state media, because you know, New Zealand public sentiment is is gone quite negative towards China. Fifty eight percent of New Zealanders see China as a threat, according to uh, survey figures from the Asia New Zealand Foundation that came out earlier in the year. So, if six out of ten people don't like China in New Zealand, it's it's harder. Um, if you're a politician, to be overly positive towards it, and yet, you know, below the surface, I think they know that they've they've got to mm-hmm. keep this relationship in good health because, you know, what are the alternatives here, and especially for the farming base and the and the national party. When you're dealing with China, don't you have to remember history to a certain extent? China was humiliated up until the end of World War II by the West, not by New Zealand, but by the West generally, by England, France, the United States, uh, gun, gunboat diplomacy, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, the city of Shanghai was almost a, a Western outpost. And they remember that. And they probably also remember that New Zealand had a different role. Mm. So maybe you're right. Maybe the way to influence China 
for a country like New Zealand is to continue that role, continue uh, being a country they can talk to without feeling that they're well, talking to somebody who humiliated them in the past. Well, Marvin, I would always argue for the engagement route. And that's not always a popular line. I guess there's something satisfying about saying, you know, a country's behavior is unacceptable. We should cut our ties and show our displeasure. And I, I, when I say that, I, I'm also thinking of the reaction to Qatar's hosting of the World Cup at the moment. And there's been a lot of discontent over that because of human rights issues, the treatment of migrant workers and so forth in, in, in Qatar. But I would always say, well, what is the alternative? You know, again, if you're a country like New Zealand, you're not very large in terms of size. You know, so, you know, okay, you can go down the boycott route, the you know disengagement route, the blacklisting route, and but where does that actually get you? I think it actually just puts you closer to war. I and think in a situation like Ukraine, where there already is a war, that's a different situation. It is a different situation. But I think, in general, we should always go the engagement route. And when I last talked to you, Marvin, we were in that period in the lead-up to the war on, in Ukraine. We, of course, we were all hoping at the time. I think I talked to you at the perhaps the start of February, I think it was. And we were hoping that you know that all the negotiations and the diplomatic efforts would bear fruit. I remember Emmanuel Macron was going to Moscow and talking to Putin and trying to stop him um, from, from, from doing it. And I think that's always the... The, the better option is to keep open engagement and to see why you just have to look at, you know, what's happened in Ukraine. You've got the thousands and thousands of uh, Ukrainians have died this year, the thousands of Russians who have died. Um, there are no winners in these wars, and it was not a simple war, as Russia found out. Every, you know, invader in history thinks it's going to be a nice, easy, quick victory. That's what Putin thought, and it hasn't been. You've now got a quagmire that's been going on for nine months and there's no end in sight and the killing just continues. Those Russian missiles slamming into apartment buildings in, in downtown Kiev and into energy infrastructure, it's, it's terrible. Um, of course, so, some people would argue that the West should have reacted when um, the Crimea was invaded. Yeah, I mean, you can go back and you can second guess and perhaps, yeah, perhaps the West um, let Putin get away with too much for too long and needed to to intercede sooner and um you know look just because i arguing for engagement it doesn't mean that there isn't room for a stick and i think there is always room for the you know for for the 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 harder line i think for new zealand's you know i think though as a smaller country you know your stick is less effective so the carrot and the engagement route is probably going to be more effective if you're a smaller country. If you're the United States, on the other hand, you know, perhaps wielding the big stick is what you need to do as a country. You know, the United States, for example, and its relations with China, you know, obviously it's, it's going to be more effective probably, um, when it wields a big stick than New Zealand is just by okay. virtue of size and dependence. Um, but I, I think engagement is usually the route that New Zealand should take. So I'm always against this idea of expelling ambassadors. We've seen calls to expel the Iranian ambassador. Uh, for example, we've seen plenty of calls to expel the uh, the Russian ambassador from Wellington. And I would always oppose that because, you know, it might make you feel good the day you do it. You, the day you kick out the ambassador will make you feel really good. Um, but after that, you realize that you've lost the one channel of communication that you might have had. 
and nothing really changes. You know, what does Russia mm-hmm. care at the point that it's expelled from New Zealand? Um, you know, if, okay, maybe if you do it in coordination with other countries, maybe, maybe the impact is, is increased, but I think New Zealand can do far more by engaging and by trying to play that, uh, you know, ideally, I think New Zealand's role is as, as an intermediary. So Jacinda Ardern calls for dialogue and diplomacy. I would love to see her using her profile that she's built to lead some of this dialogue and diplomacy and de-escalation. She calls for this in her speeches, but we don't see the leadership then in the um, in, in turning this into practice. I think there's a huge opportunity for New Zealand, um, and particularly for Jacinda Ardern, actually, given her profile and her international standing, to kind of lead some more uh, diplomatic initiatives and lead the diplomacy side. There's very few countries like New Zealand around um, New Zealand's, you know, an independent uh, democracy, uh, not part of a bigger block, is actually quite a valuable, uh, a valuable thing. And uh, I think there could be uh, certainly more opportunities for New Zealand to do that in the in the future. And that was my piece that I wrote way back at the start of the year that was published in the Otago Daily Times. I think that we talked about that in my interview with you at the start of February, uh, along with uh, Professor Robert Patman. And I still think that's the case. And sometimes people call me, you know, naive to think that New Zealand can do this and little New Zealand, what can we do? But I, I would always remain optimistic. And I, I think we could always have to try. It might not work, but there's not a reason not to try it. And I think New Zealand just doesn't try when it comes to some of these things. We think we're too small to lead. And I think that's wrong. I think we should always try and lead. And, uh, you know, goodness me, we need more diplomacy in the world and more dialogue in the world at the moment. Okay, in relation to New Zealand leading and in relation to the Southern Hemisphere's anti-nuclear stance, should New Zealand as part of the Southern Hemisphere uh, be intervening with Japan's intention to dump Fukushima's nuclear waste in the Pacific for the next 30 years, which seems to be their intention. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting question. You, you sent that question to me in preparation for the interview, and I, and I hadn't honestly read much about this, so I went and looked at, uh, looked at it. It doesn't seem, um, yeah, it's, it's not a great option, but it seems to be the best of a whole lot of bad options for disposing of this waste. And it is a reminder of the danger of, of nuclear technology, um, and uh, you know, New Zealand, of course, is a proudly nuclear-free free country. And, and this year, just in general, Marvin, we've seen the nuclear threat just being front and centre. And you think about why NATO troops have not gone into Ukraine. It's primarily because of the, the nuclear threat, because of uh, the implicit threat there from Russia um, to, to use nuclear weapons. And I still think that's why this war cannot be won in Ukraine. It can't be won by Ukraine because I think in the end Vladimir Putin can just push the red button at any time and, and launch a nuclear weapon. And it doesn't have to be on Kiev. It could be uh, in the Black Sea somewhere. Um, it could be just a show of force and that would be enough. But in terms of, you know, Fukushima, you know, we remember that, you know, a decade ago. It's, it's, you know, it is terrifying, isn't it? To think of the power of, of nuclear weapons and nuclear technology. Generally, even when it's used for people per- peaceful purposes, uh, there are a whole lot of risks associated with it. We've seen, you know, we've seen both sides of that. We've seen the 
you know, the nuclear power plants with Fukushima, um, with Chernobyl also, of course, and Ukraine and accidents. And, but we've also seen, you know, the nuclear threat coming from, uh, Vladimir Putin from, from the nuclear weapons side of things. And both are pretty scary, really. And I think we're at the, we're the closest point to nuclear war this year than we have been at any time since the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which is quite shocking, you know, um, really, given, you know, we're not supposedly in the Cold War anymore, but um, the nuclear threat is really real, and I think it's underestimated. So I, I think, you know, we need to just keep remembering this when we're talking about, you know, arming Ukraine. We need to realise that, you know, this does increase the nuclear threat at the same time. I think the longer this war goes on, the the more the nuclear threat goes up. Really, so it's um, you know it's something we've got to be really mindful of. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on board, and um, let's. Um, New Zealand, you think New Zealand should do its best with talking to people and with diplomacy? I would always argue for the diplomacy and the engagement route. Just we we don't have a lot of alternatives. I think, as particularly as a small country, now that doesn't mean. You know, diplomacy at any price. There are always times and places for diplomacy. And, you know, the time for diplomacy with Vladimir Putin, you know, after he invaded Ukraine, perhaps wasn't there immediately. But I think perhaps, you know, growingly, increasingly, we're seeing it as the chance. Um, it is the time for the, uh, the diplomatic route. And Joe Biden even now is talking about sitting down with Vladimir Putin. So, you know, time, the more the, this war goes on, uh, I think the more appetite there will be for a diplomatic and negotiated solution, which Thank is you. sad, but you know there aren't any perfect options. Thanks. Thanks a lot. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.